Chapter 4 of Max by Catherine Cecil Thurston. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 4 The mind of the boy was very full as he passed out of the hotel, so full that he scarcely noticed the whip of cold air that stung his face, or the white mantle that lay upon the streets, wrapping in a silver sheath all that was sordid, all that was dirty and unpicturesque in that corner of Paris. The human note had been touched in that moment in the salle à manger, and his ears still tingled to its sound. Alarm, disgust, and a strange exultant satisfaction warred within him in a manner to be comprehended by his own soul alone. As he stepped out into the Rue de Donquerque, he scarcely questioned in what direction his feet should carry him. North, south, east, and west were equal on that first day. Everywhere was promise, everywhere a call. Nonchalantly, and without intention, he turned to the left and found himself once more in face of the Gare du Nord. It is a good thing to rejoice in spite of the world. It is an infinitely better thing to rejoice in company with it. With solitude and freedom, the alarm, the disgust receded, and as he went forward the exultation grew, until once again his mercurial spirits lifted him as upon wings. The majority of passers-by at this morning hour were workers, work-girls out upon their errands, business-men going to or from the cafés, but here and there was to be seen an artist, consciously indifferent to appearances, here and there an artisan, unconsciously picturesque in his coarse working clothes, here and there a well-dressed woman sunning herself in the cold, bright air like a bird of gay plumage. It was the world in miniature, and it stirred and piqued his interest. A wish to stop one of these people, and to pour forth his longings, his hopes, his dreams, surged within him in a glow of fellowship, and, smiling to himself at the pleasant wildness of the thought, he made his way through the wider spaces of the Place Lafayette and the square Montolon into the long, busy Rue Lafayette. Here, in the Rue Lafayette, the gloomy aspects of the district he had made his own dropped behind him, and a wealth of bustle and gaiety greeted and fascinated him. Here the sun seemed fuller, the traffic was more dense, and the shops offered visions to please every sense. Wine-shops were here, curio-shops, shops all golden and tempting with cheeses and butter, and hat-shops that foretold the spring in a glitter of blues and greens. He passed on, jostling the crowd good-humouredly, being jostled in the same spirit, hugging his freedom with a silent joy. Down the Rue Halavé he went, and on into the Place de l'Opera. But here he slackened his pace, and something of his insouciance dropped from him. The wide space filled with its cosmopolitan crowd, the opera-house itself so aloof in its dark splendour, spoke to him of another Paris, the Paris that might be Vienna, Petersburg, London, for all it had to say of individual life. His mood changed. He paused and looked back over his shoulder in the direction from whence he had come. But the hesitation was fleeting. A quick courage followed on the doubt. The adventurer must take life in every aspect, must face all questions, all moments. He turned up the collar of his coat, as though preparing to face a chillier region, and went forward boldly, as before. One or two narrow streets brought him out upon the Place de Rivoli, where Joan of Arc sat astride her golden horse, and where great heaps of flowers were stacked at the street corners, mimosa, lilac, violets. He halted irresistibly to glance at these flowers, breathing of the south, and to glance at the shining statue. Then he crossed the Rue de Rivoli, and passing through the garden of the Tuileries, 
emerged upon the Place de la Concorde. On the Place de la Concorde, the cool, clean hand of the morning had drawn its most striking picture. Here, in the great unsheltered spaces, the frost had fallen heavily, softening and beautifying to an inconceivable degree. The suggestion of modernity that ordinarily hangs over the place was veiled, and the subtle hints of history stole forth, binding the imagination. It needed but a touch to materialise the dream as the boy crossed the white roadway, shadowed by the white statuary, and with an odd appropriateness the touch was given. One moment his mind was a sea of shifting visions, the next it was caught and held by an inevitably thrilling sound, the sound of feet tramping to a martial tune. The touch had been given. The vague visions of tradition and history crystallised into a picture, and his heart leaped to the pulsing, steady tramp, to the clash of fife and drum ringing out upon the fine cold air. All humanity is drawn by the sight of soldiers. There is a primitive exhilaration in the idea of marching men that would last while the nations live. Stung by the same impulse that affected every man and woman in the Place de la Concorde, the boy paused, his head up, his pulses quickened, his eyes and ears strained towards the sound. It was a regiment of infantry marching down the Cour de la Reine, and defiling out upon the Place de la Concorde towards the Rue de Rivoli. By a common impulse he paused, and by an equally common desire to be close to the object of interest, he ran forward to where a little crowd had gathered in the soldiers' route. The French soldier is not individually interesting, and this body of men looked insignificant enough upon close inspection. Yet it was a regiment, it stirred the fancy, and the boy gazed with keen interest at the small figures and the ill-fitting uniforms, and at the faces, many as young as his own, that denied past him in confusing numbers. On and on the regiment wound, a coiling line of dull red and bluish-grey against the frosty background, the feet tramping steadily, the fifes and drums beating out with an incessant clamour. Then, without warning, a new interest touched the knot of watchers, a thrill passed from one member of the crowd to another, and hats were raised. The colours were being borne by, Frenchmen were saluting their flag. The knowledge sprang to the boy's mind with the swiftness and poignancy of an inspiration. This body of men might be insignificant, but it represented the army of France, a thing of infinite tradition, of infinite romance. The blood mounted to his face, his heart beat faster, and with a strange, half-shy sense of participating in some fine moment, his hand went up to his hat. Unconsciously he made a picture as he stood there, his dark hair stirred by the light early air, his young face beautiful in its sudden enthusiasm, and to one pair of eyes in the little crowd it seemed better worth watching than the passing soldiers. The owner of these eyes had been observant of him from the moment that he had run forward, drawn by the rattle of the drums, and now, as if in acceptance of an anticipated opportunity, he forced a way through the knot of people, and, pausing behind the boy, addressed him in an easy, familiar voice, as one friend might address another. "'Isn't it odd?' he said, "'to look at those insignificant creatures, and to think that the soldiers of France have kissed the women and thrashed the men the world over.' Had a gun been discharged close to his ear, the boy could not have started more violently. Fear leaped into his eyes. He wheeled round. Then a sharp, nervous laugh of relief escaped him. "'How you frighten me!' he exclaimed. "'How you frighten me!' Then he laughed again. His travelling companion of the night before smiled down on him from his superior height, 
and the boy noted for the first time that this smile had a peculiarly attractive way of communicating itself, from the clean-shaven lips to the greyish-green eyes of the stranger, banishing the slightly satirical look that marked his face in repose. "'Well?' the Irishman was still studying him. "'Well? We're all on the knees of the gods, you see. It was written that we were to meet. You can't avoid me.' The flag had been carried past. The boy replaced his hat, glad of a moment in which to collect his thoughts. What must he do? The question beat in his brain. Wisbon whispered avoidance of this stranger. Today was the first day. Was it wise to bring into it anything from yesterday? No, it was not wise. Reason upheld wisdom. He pulled his hat into place. His lips came together in an obstinate line, and he raised his eyes. The sun was dancing on a silvery world. From the Rue de Rivoli the fifes and drums still rattled out their march. Close beside him, the Irishman was looking at him with his pleasant smile. Suddenly, as a daring horseman might give rein to a young horse, rejoicing in the risk, the boy discarded wisdom and its whispering curb. His nature leaped forth in sudden comradeship, and impulsively he held out his hand. "'Monsieur, forgive me,' he said. "'The gods know best.' He said the words in English, perfectly, easily, with that faintest of all foreign intonations, the intonation that clings to the Russian voice. End of chapter 4